Hey everyone, yours truly here with uh, what will most likely prove to be a not-so-brief message. I've decided to pull episode 204 from both Podbean and YouTube. Not for any controversial reasons, I still stand behind the thoughts and ideas I expressed within. I just thought the editing was too sloppy and it was driving me crazy. As you guys probably already know, I work full-time, and when I get home, I take care of whatever else needs taken care of, and then I try to find time to do what I really love, working on this podcast, as well as some other creative endeavors. And this week, I think I just bit off more than I could chew. I rushed to get out an over-an-hour-long unscripted episode, and I'm just disgusted by the uh, editing job I did. I should have let it sit another day and gave it a final listen with fresh ears. I tried listening back to it a few times after the fact to see if I could live with it. But no, it's subpar enough that I've decided to yank it and replace it with this re-edit. In case you're wondering what the editing errors were exactly... Well, there's often times when after recording an unscripted episode, I'll spot little glitchy clicks or pops or spots where I stumbled over my tongue or misspoke, and I'll try to excise those bits and re-record a word or phrase, and no matter how hard I try to replicate my original tone or inflection, the result can still end up sounding suspiciously awkward or unnatural, like, hi, how are you today? Or... That is a nice dress. And so it's, uh, you know what I'm saying. And I felt like there was a ton of that in this episode. And there was an awkward part about 50 minutes in where I repeat myself over and over. So for the sake of my sanity, I decided to put this episode under the knife. But while I'm here uh, recording this message, I should probably take the opportunity to let my Patreon supporters know that I just released some new bonus content. It's a reading of H.P. Lovecraft's The Outsider, one of my favorite short stories. I love the twist at the end. And I think since the tomb has run its course on Patreon, I'm going to release that on the podcast feed. So be on the lookout for that. Okay, but without further ado, I now give you the re-edit of episode 204. Thanks, guys. Here we go. Hey, everyone. I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Really, I mean it. Whoever. And this is episode 204. Before we start, I'd like to give a shout-out to the one and only Nips Keen. Uh, as well as Matthew Sharnweber for liking the Weekend Out Facebook page. In fact, Matthew sent me a very nice message regarding episode 203. I have to warn you beforehand, there is an F-bomb uh, and maybe some other swear words in there. Uh, so if you're one of my listeners with delicate ears and you're listening using uh, Apple's official podcast app, you may want to hit that little circular arrow thing that lets you go forward like 15 seconds. Hit it now. Okay. Dude, been listening for a while now. Be warned, I swear lots. This fucking show is how I kill my weekend. Tonight's was perfect. I love the topics you choose, and even when I disagree with a position you take, I really like the fact that I know we don't agree. You explain your thoughts out fully. 
I absolutely use your lack of double talk and other bullshit rhetorical crap as a mental palate cleanse after all my Sunday political noise. Keep this up. I look forward to your apps every Sunday. Even the short ones are great. Thank you. I try not to swear too often on the show because, as I explained early on uh, in the show's history, I think one of the first compliments I got, and I heard it a couple of times, was that I'm kind of a nice, mellow alternative to the more over-the-top atheist podcasters and YouTube personalities out there who uh, really, you know swear up a storm and go for the more kind of shock jock approach. Uh, Nothing against those guys. I consider myself a fan of many content creators who would fit that description. And I personally have nothing morally against swearing. I swear like a drunken sailor when I'm hanging out with my friends. But uh, to reiterate, just in case I have listeners with sensitive ears out there, you know, I, I just, I try to keep it to a minimum. But I really loved Matthew's feedback, and I wanted to read it unfiltered and uncensored. And maybe it also gave me an excuse to swear on the show. You gotta open that release valve every once in a while. But thank you, Matthew. I appreciate it very much. And hopefully this doesn't sound corny or trite. But it really is touching, and it means a lot when people get in touch and and let me know how much they enjoy the show and when they encourage me to keep going. It's uh, inspiring, to say the least, to know you're not just talking to yourself and that other people out there are actually listening and uh, and that they appreciate what you do. Let's see, uh, I did get some rather odd feedback via YouTube. Someone who goes by the YouTube handle Calvin Smith simply says in the comments below the video version of last week's episode, quote-unquote, You're still alive? I'm not sure what that means. I think I'm alive. Maybe I have the opposite of Cotard's delusion, and I'm actually dead but mistakenly under the false impression that I'm alive. Uh, Either way, uh, my philosophy is just go with it and try to have fun. Yeah, so I don't know what that's about. Oddly, Calvin left a very thoughtful reply under another one of my videos around the same time. Uh, Maybe he thought I died in between episode 202 and 203. But anyway, so now I want to quickly make a correction or clarification of sorts. Not really a biggie, but you longtime listeners know me. I like to try to be as factual as possible, and I can't stand the idea that I might be putting bad information out there. So last week I talked about Surah 532 again. It contains that quote about how if you kill one person, it's as if you kill all of humanity, and if you save one person, yada yada. Uh, That quote that I used to find very inspirational until I read it in context. Well, I said that it seemed to be aimed specifically towards the Jews, which I believe is largely true. But I said it used the term people of the book, a phrase used in the Quran for adherents of the Abrahamic faiths, including Christianity. But the verse in question actually uses the phrase children of Israel, which would seem to indicate that it's addressing the Jewish people specifically. Although I think children of Israel can also be used in Islamic texts to refer to other related Semitic peoples or religious groups too. Uh, Specifically, I think the Karaites and the Samaritans. 
reasons. Uh, but there it is. There's my mistake. Mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. Why don't I read Surah 532 or, you know, Surah 5 verses 32 through 33 or ayats just for the heck of it. Okay, so here we go. Because of that, we decreed upon the children of Israel that whoever kills a soul unless for a soul or for corruption in the land, it is as if he had slain mankind entirely. And whoever saves one, it is as if he had saved mankind entirely. And our messengers had certainly come to them with clear proofs. Then indeed many of them, after that, throughout the land, were transgressors. So you can see how it's got that nice quote that often uh, apologists or uh, proponents of the supposed merits of Islam uh, will often quote. And it's often worded different ways, but the gist is always, you know, if you kill one person, it's as if you've killed all of mankind. If you save one, it's as if you've saved all of mankind. But you can see right before that, though, in the same verse, it seems to be directed specifically to the children of Israel. Something that uh, usually gets left out when people are quoting it. Then the very next verse, Indeed the penalty for those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and strive upon earth to cause corruption is none but that they be killed or crucified or that their hands and feet be cut off from opposite sides or that they be exiled from the land. That is for them a disgrace in this world and for them in the hereafter is a great punishment. You guys are probably sick of hearing me read that one, but it keeps on uh, popping up for some reason. Okay, so on with the show. So I don't know why I'm such a masochist, but I'm going to wade eyeballs deep into yet another hot-button issue. This time it's France's controversial laws or policies concerning Islamic religious garb, such as head scarves and so-called burkinis. This subject has been in the back of my mind for a while now, and a recent story concerning the enforcement of an anti-Burkini uh, ban brought it to the fore. So maybe I'll read a little bit of a news article having to do with the uh, aforementioned ban. And uh, it comes from the Huff Post, and it's dated August 24th, so not that long ago. And it's entitled, Photos of Burkini Ban Enforcement Show Frightening Reality of Policing Women's Bodies. And this is by Antonia Bloomberg, it looks like, Associate Religion Editor for the Huffington Post. And right off the bat, there is a somewhat kind of jarring photo um, they have here embedded in the article. It shows four police officers standing around uh, a Muslim woman on uh, a beach in France as she is pulling off one of her outer garments, I think, to try to prove that she's not wearing a burkini or something. But anyway, continuing with the article, photos began circulating Tuesday evening showing four armed policemen approaching a woman resting on the beach in Nice, France, and apparently asking her to remove her outer garments. The woman who seemed to be enjoying a peaceful nap was dressed in a light blue tunic and long pants, with a scarf tied around her hair, but her comfortable outfit, however innocuous, may have infringed upon the city's new burkini ban. And there's another image of the same scene, and um, the caption reads, Some women have already been issued fines for violating the ban. 
Nice is one of nearly a dozen towns that have banned the body-covering swimwear, often referred to as burkinis, due to rising backlash against outward displays of religious affiliation. The ban, as many have noted, disproportionately affects Muslim women, some of whom favor dressing modestly in public. And I think that's probably true, that, that many of them do favor dressing modestly in public, but we can't help but at least I can't help but to be reminded of the original reasons why women, uh, Muslim women, have to wear this type of outfit. That's usually for cultural or religious reasons, having to do with what I find personally to be outdated and kind of disturbing notions about modesty, religious purity, and the so-called place of women in society. And let us not forget that in certain Muslim regions, it isn't really a choice. And this whole tradition of wearing burqas and niqabs, etc., etc., has to do with, at least in part, as I just alluded to, trying to force women to cover up, uh, force women to appear quote-unquote modest. So I'm sure that there are a lot of women who happen to be Muslim, who live in Western nations, or maybe who live in more quote-unquote secular Muslim nations like Turkey, who do view it as a choice, maybe as some have even argued, you know, they claim it's empowering. But let's not forget where the tradition stems from, and I'll talk about that later on when I go a little into the history of some of these types of headwear and garments. But let's get back to the article. Arguments for a ban on the burkini range from upholding women's rights to curbing terrorism, both of which many Muslims reject and find blatantly offensive. Well, the upholding women's rights probably has to do what I, with what I was just talking about. These are traditions that were most likely imposed on women originally, once again, trying to force them to be modest. And as I was also just saying, there are still parts of the world where it isn't a choice. I think parts of southern Iraq, uh, the Sudan, Saudi Arabia, I think these are places where it's either legally or culturally compulsory. So that could be what they mean when they're talking about upholding women's rights by forbidding the wearing of some of these religious garments. Curbing terrorism, I'm not so sure about that. I don't know how forbidding women to wear religious garments is going to somehow prevent terrorism, unless your long-term thinking is that, you know, somehow you can force people to be secular. And maybe that starts with forbidding them from wearing these outward religious trappings. And uh, eventually, maybe they'll become secular in spirit or attitude as well. Uh, I'm a little skeptical of that, uh, but I think I'll delve into that a little more uh, later on, too. But continues, Lawrence Rezinal, probably butchering that, the French government's minister for women's rights has defended the rapidly spreading burkini ban, saying, The burkini is not some new line of swimwear. It is the beach version of the burqa, and it has the same logic. Hide women's bodies in order to better control them. Uh, and I'm going to uh, agree with that, and not to sound like a broken record, but I think originally that was the goal, and there's still many... Uh, Muslim lands where that still is the point. 
to keep women modest and submissive and in their quote-unquote place. Women are essentially the property of their families or husbands, and they have to keep themselves covered. Uh, they may only reveal themselves to their husband, or I think I was reading today also, depending on where you are, when I say reveal, yes, naked to the husband, I would imagine, but I think a woman can remove her veil or burqa also around male family members or in-laws. But, you know, and I think part of the thinking is it, it almost smacks of sexual jealousy or something. The woman must remain covered, you know, uh, no one else should see her, uh, lest she, uh, arouse lust in the heart of another man. And then that's somehow, you know, her fault. But then, as I said before, uh, where it becomes a little more complicated is that women have been forced to wear these things for so long that has kind of become cultural. And uh, a lot of women seem to proudly wear these garments as uh, outward signs of their their culture or whatnot. And they, they see it as a proud part of their their identity or something like that. But I mean, which is it? Is it an oppressive symbol of religious fundamentalism and uh, treating women like chattel? Or is it a colorful display of one's ethnic heritage? <laughs> I, I, I guess in a way it's both. It, it depends on the woman, her personal attitude towards these garments. Uh, and I imagine it, it also depends on which part of the world you're living in. I think I was also reading earlier that when the Taliban rose to power, they strictly enforced the wearing of burqas. And I'm sure those women, you know, they probably didn't feel like it was a proud uh, part of their ethnic identity. Imagine you're a woman and a bunch of uh, guys, you know, riding on tanks with AK-47s with a penchant for uh, meeting out some rather brutal and barbaric uh, jurisprudence suddenly tell you, you know, what you have to wear, that you have to cover your body up because they say so. Uh, but anyway, so it continues. Social media users quickly circulated the photos and pointed out that French municipal governments now seem to be in the business of controlling women's bodies. And it has some tweets here. Let's see. One is from Dr. Shabana Mir, and it says, Stop all policing of women's bodies no mandatory headscarf slash veil, no demands to uncover, hashtag burkini ban. Well, I think ideally, I think she kind of hit the nail on the head. No one should be forced to wear a headscarf or a veil. And I think ideally, no one should be forced to have to remove a headscarf or a veil either. Within reason, if, if there's security concerns that require that everyone shows their face or, um, you know, not have their head covered, then I think that's different. But I think if it's not a security concern, you're not at an airport or some type of high security event or something, uh, if a woman just wants to lie on the beach, uh, dress head to toe in the baking hot sun in black, no less, I guess why not, you know what I mean? Uh, but I can't tell France what to do. I'm just a uh, podcaster. Then it continues. Many also pointed out that the band's intended goal of upholding a secular society only seems to extend so far. Would armed police force a nun to remove her habit on the beach, for instance? 
And uh, on face value, this seems like a real gotcha. You're like, hmm, yeah, maybe they got a point. A bit of hypocrisy, perhaps. But in a little bit, I'm going to read about the history of these types of bands. They're, they're nothing new, really, in France. And um, France places a lot of importance on quote-unquote minority assimilation. So yeah, you could argue if your goal is secularism, then you know people, then nuns and people in burkas should both have to uh, undress. And all of a sudden, that sounds like a, a really strange porn. Um, there's my inappropriate sense of humor. You know, it had to come out at some point. Yeah, but if what you're really worried about is minority assimilation, then you could try to make an argument that that people wearing European Christian religious garments that have been, you know, worn in um, the Western world for centuries, that that's not as much of a concern because those people are already assimilated. It's uh, you're trying to get uh, this new group to assimilate. And it, it, even as I say it, it does smack of uh, unfairness to some degree, but I'll wrestle with this a, a bit more. I'll, I'll continue with the article yeah, then it talks a little bit more about this specific incident um, where I thought I heard uh, one account. Now, just to describe it to you, there's a woman on the beach. She's just resting, laying down. She's wearing all black, basically from ankle to head or whatever. But over that, she also has a kind of blue tunic and a some kind of blue uh, head guard. And I heard, according to one account, that she was taking off the blue garment to prove that she wasn't wearing a burkini underneath. But it seems like this article is implying that that blue tunic might be part of the burkini and the police were ordering her to remove it. Who knows? But it says, it occurred on August 23rd, the cops made the woman remove her clothing in front of fellow beachgoers following the recent burkini ban. And when they say remove her clothing, you know, it sounds like they made her strip, which which I guess partially in a sense they did. But it looks like from the pictures, they're making her take off the blue outer garment. And underneath, she's wearing some kind of sleeveless black top. And then lower down, it's showing a picture of a female Muslim surfer who's covered basically head to toe. Um, very strange. But she looks happy. She's smiling in the picture. If she doesn't mind, I, you know, whatever. But I mean, I have to say I do feel bad for this woman. I mean, it, it does suck if you're just a normal citizen who's just trying to enjoy yourself. You know, you're not a terrorist or whatever. And all of a sudden, four policemen surround you and force you to disrobe, even if it's only partially. I, I can see how that would be, you know, awkward and humiliating. And to be honest, I don't know if the woman, if this woman knew beforehand that there was a ban. You can make an argument if she knew beforehand that it's like, hey, you knew there was a ban being enforced, you know, so what do you think was going to happen? But if she had no idea, maybe, you know, maybe the word hadn't spread yet, I don't know. Then, yeah, you know, I, I'd have to say that I feel bad for her, you know. But yeah, at the top of the show, I did half-jokingly call myself a masochist. And, and that's because this is one of those controversial subjects where I know no matter what I say, I'm going to end up catching flack from someone, maybe even from people on both sides of the argument. 
if I'm too lenient or sympathetic regarding, you know, the right to wear religious headwear or whatever it is, the hardcore anti-Islamic types um, might be upset with me. Um, and if I lean too much in the other direction or I'm too hard on Islam, then the really far left bleeding heart types will be offended. And I say that uh, as a left-leaning independent uh, myself. And sometimes something of a bleeding heart, I guess you could say. And when I say hardcore anti-Islamic types, hopefully that doesn't come off as too offensive. Because I know a lot of my subscribers, especially on YouTube, who I interact with regularly, um, a lot of them have very strong feelings about Islam. And as an atheist, I agree with a lot of their criticisms. But I, I was thinking to myself earlier when I was trying to, you know, kind of create an outline for this episode, I thought to myself, well, I guess since I can't really win either way, I might as well just say what I actually think. You know, there's a novel idea. After all, uh, that's supposed to be what this podcast is all about, being as honest as possible and trying to use logic and reason to get to the truth. Although, of course, opinion does come into play. Uh, I might be a godless heathen, but I do like to consider myself someone who tries to embrace humanistic values. And I'm sure that colors my worldview to some extent, no matter how unbiased or objective I try to be. Or maybe the show's just about me thinking out loud. Who knows? But behavior is not going to do that. We get it, Ben. I'm long-winded. Bad joke, I know. I'm trying to make use of some Ben Affleck clips I isolated. So as I alluded to earlier, these kinds of bans or prohibitions in France are nothing new. I was surprised to learn while researching the subject that these types of uh, bans go back to at least the 1980s. I'm always thinking of us as living in a post-9-11 world, so hearing about one of these stories that predates 9-11 did catch me off guard a bit. But I'll read a little bit about the history of these bans from, you guessed it, Wikipedia. Haven't had to say that in a while. So the first article is entitled Islamic Scarf Controversy in France. The Islamic Scarf Controversy in France, referred to there as L'Affaire du Voile, I don't know how to pronounce it, Veil in, in um, French, however you pronounce that, or the Islamic Veil Affair, among other binames, arose in 1989 pertaining to the wearing of the hijab in French public schools. It involved issues of the place of Muslim women, differences between Islamic doctrine and Islamic tradition, the conflict between communitarianism and the French policy of minority assimilation, discussions of the quote-unquote Islamist threat to French society, and this is back in the 80s, and of Islamophobia. It's, it's gross. It's racist. And I was thinking about the word Islamophobia today, not to get too sidetracked. I guess it's still um, on topic. And I actually found myself getting, like, angry a bit. Not noticeably angry. I wasn't, like, pacing in circles with smoke coming out of my ears or anything. But I remember feeling a bit indignant thinking about the word Islamophobia and how it's used against critics of Islam and used to try to silence conversation. And I was thinking to myself, most of us atheists, you know, who are critical of Islam, we're also critical of Christianity, we're critical of Scientology, Mormonism, etc., etc. Yet, no one ever says that you have some kind of bigoted phobia 
if you criticize Christianity or if you criticize Scientology, because most people probably realize just how batshit crazy it is, a religion made up by a drug-addled science fiction author. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, maybe some sensitive Christian, sensitive Mormon, sensitive Scientologist or whatever might accuse you of being bigoted. But generally speaking, by society at large, if you criticize any of these other religions, you're not accused of having some bigoted phobia. But Islam, you know, I mean, if you criticize Islam, you're accused of, uh, as Ben Affleck said, being gross and racist. When it's nothing to do with the color of the person's skin. Um, it's everything to do with us being offended by some of the notions in this archaic man-made belief system. And of course, there's a difference between moderates and extremists or fundamentalists, you know? I don't have anything in the world against moderate Muslims who aren't trying to force their religion on everyone else. My problem is with the Islamic extremist butchers out there, uh, those who support what they're doing, and also with the parts of Islamic doctrine that justify the actions of the butchers. Just like, I don't mind if someone you know, calls themselves a Christian, maybe they're a cafeteria Catholic, whatever. They're not trying to push their religion on me, but I'll, I'll still have a problem with some of the ugly stuff in the Bible, and I'll still have a problem with Christian fundamentalists. So, I mean, obviously, right now at this point in time, I think Islamic fundamentalists are a much greater threat than Christian fundamentalists. But you know what I'm saying, hopefully. I'm trying to drive home the point that, as atheists, people who are critical of religion in general, there's this one religion that when we criticize it, we're accused of being bigots. And I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's right. Religions are just man-made belief systems criticizing them shouldn't be considered taboo. They should be on the table and subject or susceptible to criticism, along with every other man-made idea or philosophy. But I'll continue with that article. The controversy over the Islamic scarf hijab was sparked on the 18th of September 1989, when three female students were suspended for refusing to remove their scarves in class at Gabrielle Havez Middle School, I think it is. Um, and then it goes on for a few paragraphs talking about similar protests with students refusing to remove their headscarves, cases going to court, yada yada. How come I only say yada yada on this show? I've never said it outside of that. <clears throat> Except when talking about Seinfeld. Wasn't there that yada yada episode? Anyway, this same Wikipedia article has a paragraph, or not a paragraph, a section regarding Muslim tradition. The tradition of the headscarf itself has been in existence since before the advent of Islam, and depictions of Mary, mother of Jesus, show her wearing a hair covering. It is not explicitly commanded in the Quran, yet some consider it a part of tradition. 
The importance assigned to head covering varies, from that of colorful headscarves that do not conceal much hair in sub-Saharan Africa, to headscarves that cover the hair and neck to the extent that it should cover all hair, as worn in much of the world, to cloths that cover part of the face, Yemen, and in Saudi Arabia, the entire body must be covered by the veil, burqa, as is the case in some areas of Pakistan. In most Muslim societies, this obligation is not enforced by law. In Egypt and Turkey, for example, wearing the scarf is controversially forbidden in certain professional contexts. And I thought I read a story recently about how Turkey just recently allowed the wearing of headscarves by um, female, was it police officers? I forget exactly. In reality, unveiled Muslim women are a common sight in cities such as Istanbul, Karachi, Islamabad, Rabat, and in Jakarta, Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world. However, the obligation is legally enforced in certain countries such as Iran, and those who violate such laws are legally culpable for their dress. Most societies in the Muslim world take a more relaxed approach to the scarf, where girls and women can be seen wearing hair coverings of all levels or none at all. And before I continue, while well, I have this opportunity, I just wanted to quickly comment on the fact that a YouTuber uh, who I'm friendly with already took issue with the part of that Wikipedia article I read where it compares the head coverings of Muslim women to the head covering on the Virgin Mary that we see in Christian art. I don't know if the person, uh, I, I assume they were an atheist, I don't know if they're a Christian or what, but something about that comparison, I think, set them off a little. Uh, I do think it is a little weird. Is it possible that maybe the writer of the article was a bit biased and was trying to soften the image of Islamic headwear by drawing a comparison to Christianity and the Virgin Mary? Uh, I don't know, but I, I think I touch on this again a, a little more later on. Now, here's another Wikipedia article entitled French Ban on Face Covering. The French Ban on Face Covering, and there's no way in, in heck I'm going to try to pronounce this, uh, Law of 2010-1192, Act Prohibiting Concealment of the Face in Public Space, is an act of parliament passed by the Senate of France on the 14th of September 2010, resulting in the ban on the wearing of face covering headgear, including masks, helmets, balaclavas, I think it is, niqabs, and other veils covering the face in public places, except under specified circumstances. The ban also applied to the burqa, a full body covering, if it covers the face. Consequently, full-body costumes and zentais, or zen I don't know what the heck that is. Is that like hentai? I'm probably pronouncing it wrong anyway. Um, Skin-tight garments covering entire body were banned. The bill had previously been passed by the National Assembly of France on the 13th of July, 2010. The key argument supporting this proposal is that the face coverings prevent the clear identification of a person, which is both a security risk and a social hindrance within a society which relies on facial recognition and expression and communication. 
The key argument against the ban is that it encroaches on individual freedom. Then continues, as of April 11th, 2011, it is illegal to wear a face covering veil or other mask in public places such as the street, shops, museums, public transportation, and parks. Veils such as the chador, scarves, and other headwear that do not cover the face are not affected by this law and can be worn. The law applies to all citizens, including men and non-Muslims, who may not cover their face in public except where specifically provided by law, such as motor bike riders and safety workers, and during established occasional events, such as some carnivals. The law imposes a fine of up to 150 euros and or participation in citizenship education for those who violate the law. As a result of the law, the only exceptions to a woman wearing a niqab in public will be if she is traveling in a private car or worshiping in a religious place. French police say that while there are 5 million Muslims in France, fewer than 2,000 are thought to fully cover their faces with a veil. The wearing of all conspicuous religious symbols in public schools was previously banned in 2004 by a different law, the French Law on Secularity and Conspicuous Religious Symbols in Schools. This affected the wearing of Islamic veils and headscarves in schools, as well as turbans and other distinctive items of dress. And there's where I'm a bit torn. On the one hand, as um, a secularist, as an atheist, I kind of want to give the thumbs up to France, you know, for really endorsing secular values and trying to strip away some of this religious baggage uh, that kind of separates us. And at the same time, I think, you know, one of the secular or humanist or humanistic values that I embrace is individual freedom. So that's where I'm torn. On the one hand, I like the emphasis that France puts on secularism. On the other hand, it is always a little scary when people are trying to, or the government is trying to tell individuals what they can or cannot wear, getting that much into the minutia of someone's life. Then there's some interesting responses to um this face covering uh, ban or law. Let's see. One is from Dalil Boubakar or something like that. The Grand Mufti of the Paris Mosque, the largest and most influential in France. It says he testified to Parliament during the bill's preparation. He commented that the niqab was not prescribed in Islam that in the French and contemporary context, its spread was associated with radicalization and criminal behavior, and that its wearing was inconsistent with France's concept of the secular state, but that due to expected difficulties in applying a legal ban, he would prefer to see the issue handled case by case. Muhammad Muzawi, the president of the French Council of the Muslim Faith, opposed using a law but favored discouraging Muslim women from wearing the full veil. Then uh, it says Abdel Muti al-Bayami, I think it is, a member of the Council of Clerics at Al-Azhar Mosque in Cairo, Egypt, applauded the ban and stated that the niqab has no basis in Sharia. He also said, I want to send a message to Muslims in France and Europe. The niqab has no basis in Islam. I used to feel dismayed when I saw some of the sisters in France wearing the niqab. This does not give a good impression of Islam. 
Yusef al-Karadawi, I think it is, another prominent Egyptian Islamic scholar, stated that, in his view, the niqab is not obligatory. While criticizing France for violating the freedom of those Muslim women who hold the view that it is, and criticizing France in that they allow other women to freely dress in a revealing and provocative manner. Well, I don't really think he has a point there with the last part. Yeah, France is trying to promote secular values, it's trying to get rid of these religious hang-ups about uh, modesty and how much women should wear, etc. So, of course, in a secular society, we're going to see women who are dressed in a more revealing fashion. But then I guess you could argue that in a secular society, maybe women should be able to wear not just as little as they want, but as much as they want. But then that takes us back to the religious aspect of, of these garments and that clashing with secularism. So it's kind of like going around in circles. Then Islamic scholar Hamza Youssef uh, criticized the French government for the ban, writing, While I am personally opposed to the face veil, it is a legitimate, if minority, opinion in the Islamic legal tradition for a woman to wear one. Most women who wear it believe they are following God's injunction and not their husband's. French laicism, is it? <clears throat> okay, what's laicism? Let's learn a new word. From laicite or something like that? Uh, I'm probably butchering that. Anyone in the audience who uh, speaks French? See, and that reminds me. I created a, uh, a second YouTube channel last night, and it's just called Phil Reads. Uh, because I was worried that all you guys who subscribe to the Week in Doubt YouTube channel, that rightfully so, you're mainly there for atheist content. And um, maybe you guys might be put off a little when I upload off-topic stuff there, like the uh, like my reading of an H.P. Lovecraft story or uh, the poetry readings and stuff. So I decided to create a channel called Phil Reads, and, and I'm going to upload me reading some of my favorite poems, short stories, uh, maybe even some of my original stuff at some point. And um, I think at this moment, I have uh, three subscribers, and I'm one of them. But hey, it's only been a day or whatever. But I was just thinking about it, because two of my favorite poets are French. And uh, ironically, um, as I've just demonstrated, my knowledge of uh, French is abysmal. Uh, but I read the English translations. Um, Charles Baudelaire and Arthur Rimbaud are two of my favorite poets, both uh, both very dark, really. Uh, I learned about both of them through reading about Jim Morrison uh, years and years ago and Jim Morrison's literary interests. But anyway, laicite or whatever it is, is the absence of religious involvement in government affairs, especially the prohibition of religious influence in the determination of state policies. It is also the absence of government involvement in religious affairs, especially the prohibition of government influence in the determination of religion. Dictionaries ordinarily translate laicite as secularity or secularism. Uh, let's see. But uh, Hamza Youssef continues... French laicism seems as fundamentalist as the very religious fanatics it wants to keep out. On a trip to France a few years ago, I was shocked to see pornography openly displayed on the streets in large advertisements. How odd that to unveil a woman for all to gape at is civilized, but for her to cover up to ward off gazes is a crime. While well, the French Prime Minister sees no problem with exposing in public places a woman's glorious nakedness, 
He is oddly and quite rapidly disturbed by allowing others to cover it up. The sooner secular nations learn to allow people of faith to live their lives in peace, the sooner peace will flourish. Well, the guy seems like he has a bit of a prudish attitude towards pornography, which uh, I do not. Um, I think a long time ago I did an episode about atheism and pornography or something like that. And um, I talked about how my only moral objection to pornography was worrying whether or not the people involved in the filming were being exploited or let's say even if you have a young woman who's participating in pornography of her own free will, completely consenting. Um, and this, I don't know if this is a stereotype, but we all have that stereotype of like, uh, somehow it's broken girls, you know, girls who came from bad families or who were physically or sexually abused who end up as strippers or adult film actresses. And, and so I guess in a way, morally, you know, if you have someone who was maybe abused as a kid, their life didn't quite go the right way. And, and so, um, they have these mixed up ideas about sexuality and somehow that leads them into porn, then I would find that morally concerning. Um, but theoretically, if you have people, how, how did I get into pornography? Oh yeah. Blame Hamza Youssef. Um, but theoretically, if you have someone who knows what they're doing, you know, even keeled human being had a perfectly fine upbringing, relatively speaking, they're just, uh, they just like the idea of having sex for money, that maybe they're a very sexual person who enjoys their work or whatever, then I have no problem with that. Hey, we're mammals, we're sexual. You're otherwise, you know, a, a stable person who enjoys life. You just like having sex on film or whatever. Then, hey, why not? And, uh, and hopefully I don't sound too prudish because if I had, uh, as I think I joked in that episode, if I had like a nickel for every adult video I've seen, uh, TMI, man, why are you going into that? I don't know. I'm talking to myself. Holy shit. Anyway. Yeah. But he tries to make that juxtaposition, you know, between a woman about how a woman being shown naked, you know, like he calls it pornography. I don't know if it was actually pornography or if it was just some kind of art nude or something like that, but he calls it pornography, uh, image of a woman completely naked how that's kind of celebrated, according to him. Well, a woman covering up to ward off gazes is a crime. But once again, this comes back to secularism. And I think the thinking is that a woman getting naked, showing the beauty of the female body, being free to do so, that's in keeping with secular values. And hang-ups about modesty, religious purity... And feeling that you have to cover yourself from head to toe for religious reasons, that goes against secularism or secular values. But he may have a point that, in a way, I'm not sure if it necessarily works. I'm willing to be argued in the other direction. But it doesn't necessarily work to try to force people to be secular in a weird way, that even sounds contradictory or paradoxical. 
you know, trying to force people to be <laughs> secular. Because I think often we equate secularism with enlightenment values like individual freedom, etc. And yeah, maybe if you do just let people wear whatever the hell they want, even if it's religious clothing, that's more in keeping with, with secular values. But to play devil's advocate or just being honest, and hopefully I don't sound like I'm flipping and flopping all over the place here, I can see the merit of the idea that, okay, if we can create a society where people aren't separated by religious boundaries and aren't looking at each other like each other is the other, didn't mean the rhyme there, due to whatever veils or headscarves or religious garb they're wearing, then we can all be more on an equal footing and truly be a part of a secular society instead of members of other tribes or religious groups. Whether or not that's pie in the sky, I don't know. And to be honest, I'm still haunted by the notion of the government trying to tell people what they can or cannot wear. But it just dawned on me, because this has been all about burkas and burkinis and niqabs, etc., and veils, uh, I, I didn't think about how maybe this affects the male population. Because I think France is trying to be fair. Um, they're trying to keep everyone from covering their faces in public. And I think, and I don't mean this to be patronizing, maybe it's just some kind of weird uh, ingrained chivalristic impulse or chivalrous impulse, uh, whatever the adjective form is. I think I'm automatically, rightly or wrongly, more bothered by the idea of women or a woman being surrounded by the cops and told what she can or can't wear. But if I picture some young Muslim dude walking down, you know, the streets of France or whatever, Paris, pick your French city, uh, dressed like ISIS in battle fatigues, maybe a black vest and a, and a black ski mask or something, I might be like, hmm, this ain't too good. I, I don't know if we should be allowing people to dress like this in public. So, I mean, I think you can hear me going back and forth, but I, th I think there is some merit in maybe not wanting people to cover their faces in public, especially in a place like France, which has suffered so many uh, terrorist attacks of, of late. Did I offend the MRAs out there with my, uh, with my double standard? Um, not my attention, but what are you going to do? To me, if I was king of France for a day, yeah, I know they don't have kings anymore, um, but I was almost going to say king of the world, you know, and I'm not saying they don't already focus on this stuff, but if I wanted to try to solve the problem of Islamic fundamentalism and radicalization in France, my focus would be on trying to crack down on radical clerics, uh, mosques where people are being radicalized, and also trying to find a way to reach the people who are in, uh, for lack of a better word, what are basically ghettos. It's, it's gross. It's racist. Oh, Ben, you think everything's gross and racist. But anyway... You know, we have these kind of impoverished um, Muslim areas. And I think a lot of the, the people feel, a lot of them like second generation immigrants. And of course, a, a lot of these horrible terrorist atrocities that we see in France and Europe are, are often committed by second gen immigrants. These 
young men who are chock full of uh, testosterone and radical Islamist ideas uh, who maybe feel disaffected or disenfranchised, have a chip on their shoulder against society, and Islam gives them this sense of belonging. And it probably also gives them, in their minds at least, an excuse or justification to finally be able to lash out or strike back at society or their host country. So yeah, to reiterate, I would try to crack down on the radicalization that takes place in certain mosques and in the prison system too, I think. And I know that's easier said than done. Because that involves having to look like the bad guy and be policing mosques and stuff like that. But I think, it, you know, it makes sense to me. It's better than sitting in, on your thumbs uh, in the name of political correctness and waiting for the next terror attack to take place. But at the same time, also try to reach out, give people opportunities, try to encourage people to assimilate. I mean, the people who are already here... Or by here, I mean France. I'm not in France. I'm in New England. You can tell by the accent. Okay, if they're here and you gotta let them stay here, yeah, try to um, help them assimilate, help them feel welcome. And by make them feel welcome, because I know that's probably going to rub some of my more hardcore listeners or subscribers the wrong way, I don't mean you roll over and show your belly in the name of political correctness or that you bury your head in the sand, or try to cover up crimes involving immigrants or migrants, such as those awful New Year's Eve sexual assaults, or those Rotherham-type cases in England. What I mean is, if you're not going to kick them out and they're here to stay, not only is it the decent thing to do, but it's probably the pragmatic thing to do as well, to treat these people with some basic human dignity and respect, offer them some opportunities, and try to help them find jobs or whatever. What's to be done regarding immigration? Uh, that's a whole nother can of worms. I've given my thoughts on that in the past, and I'm talking specifically about Europe because that's where we see this big problem with um, European countries trying to deal with these massive influxes of uh, immigrants and refugees. As I've said in the past, I respect the right of any sovereign nation to decide when and who it, it wants to open its doors to. And getting back to the problem of radicalization, I think another factor that makes this such a hard issue to tackle is the fact that, of course, now a lot of people are being radicalized online, namely by ISIS. And how you deal with that, I don't know. I think it would take the effort of governments around the world, uh, social media platforms, etc., whatever tech experts can be mustered up, and try to cut off all of ISIS's online avenues for, uh, you know, radicalization. I know that's another thing that's probably easier said than done. Yeah, but I think in general, not just France, but Europe in general, what's needed, and, uh, and hopefully this is something that's already being implemented, what's needed is a kind of two-pronged approach. On the one hand, like I said, uh, repeating myself yet again, cracking down on radicalization, clerics that have the gall 
to stir up hatred of the West and of their adopted or host countries, but at the same time trying to encourage people to assimilate and not alienating people. But I'm going totally unscripted here, so I don't know if what I'm saying is making sense or not. Hopefully it is. But there's another interesting section in one of those Wikipedia articles, and it's uh, entitled Endogamy, Exogamy. It talks about how demographer Emmanuel Todd has advanced a sociological explanation for the controversy over the veil by examining traditional familial structures in France and in the countries of origin of French Muslims. According to Todd, if Muslims impose the veil on their children, it serves to prevent them from meeting and eventually marrying non-Muslims. This preemption of mixed marriage would correspond to endogamous practices very present in many traditional Muslim societies, where it is acceptable to marry cousins in order to maintain the unity of the clan, a setup Todd refers to as an endogamous community-based family. The traditional French family would be, on the other hand, exogamous. Traditionally, young French men sought wives outside their villages. This tradition recalls images of Greco-Roman mythology and folk tales in which a man travels far and wide to find a wife. Sometimes this is in order to save her, as in the case of Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. And other times, it is simply a jaunt for the purposes of kidnapping a woman and stealing her away, Zeus and Europa. But they always live happily ever after and have many children. The veil is seen on a subconscious level as a refusal to marry, as a code which says, I will never be a part of your family. Its prohibition would mean the suppression of this opposition to mixed marriage, a kind of marriage which is more widespread in France than in most other Western countries. One possible conclusion of this line of thinking would be to prohibit wearing any distinctive signs of religious or ethnic origin for those, particularly women, living in French territory. In multicultural countries where the veil is more widely accepted, UK, United States, the rate of mixed marriages is far lower. So I think that's really interesting. And I guess it makes sense where, like like they're saying, in the UK and United States, where people are free to wear the veil, we see less mixed marriage. And even though it might seem contrary to secular values, if you force people to not wear the veil or these outward trappings of their specific religion or culture, then maybe they're more likely to mix with members of the outgroup. Because we don't have these outward signs um, or cues saying, nope, I'm not going to mix with you because I'm a member of this group. Can't you tell by the way I'm dressed or whatever? But I wanted to try to chase down the history of these type of garments, as I said earlier. And very quickly in one of those articles, it said something about how the veil predates Islam. And that wouldn't surprise me. I think the... Uh, what was the example they used? Uh, depictions of the Virgin Mary or something like that? Well, I'm sure many different cultures in antiquity had um, veils or head coverings that women would wear. Uh, I think, don't we often see depictions of ancient Roman women kind of wearing, not veils, although I think uh, ancient Roman women did wear wedding veils, but basically some kind of like thin cloth head coverings where some of the hair was still visible, I think. 
Of course, Islam is an Abrahamic faith, the first of the Abrahamic faiths, of course, Judaism. I don't know if head coverings or anything like that were borrowed from, uh, from ancient Jewish culture. I have no idea. I do know that ancient Judaism and modern Orthodox Judaism places a lot of em emphasis, similarly to Islam, on humility, on the idea that men and women should dress modestly and keep themselves covered up. So I don't know if some of that made its way into Islam via Judaism. Concerning the veil specifically, maybe uh, it could just be a pre-Islamic Arabian tradition or something like that. Pure speculation on my part. But kind of like I said last week regarding FGM, even if something predates Islam or any other given religion, but becomes incorporated into that religion, then essentially it becomes a practice of that religion. But here's a, a bit on the burqa. Let's see. A burqa, also known as a chadri or paranja in Central Asia, is an enveloping outer garment worn by women in some Islamic traditions to cover their bodies when in public. Originating from Arabic, and it gives the etymology of it, um, it looks like it's drawn from both Arabic and Urdu, it is also transliterated burqa, borka, burqa with a, a K-A or burqa with a uh, Q-U. The face veiling portion is usually a rectangular piece of semi-transparent cloth with its top edge attached to a portion of the headscarf so that the veil hangs down covering the face and can be turned up if the woman wants. In other styles, the niqab of the veil is attached by one side and covers the face only below the eyes, allowing the eyes to be seen. Let's see, then it gives examples of Islamic texts that may be referring to, um, you know, how women should cover up. Let's see. Many Muslims believe that the collected traditions of the life of Muhammad, or Hadith, require both men and women to dress and behave modestly in public. However, this requirement has been interpreted in many different ways by Islamic scholars and Muslim communities. The Quran has been translated as stating, O Prophet, say to your wives and your daughters and the women of the faithful to draw their outer garments close around themselves. That is better that they will be recognized and not annoyed. And God is, I just thought of annoyed, remember that old Domino's thing, but anyway, and not annoyed, and God is ever forgiving and gentle. Quran, Surah 33, Al-Azab, verse 59. That's another uh, Quranic verse here. And say to the faithful women to lower their gazes and to guard their private parts, and not to display their beauty except what is apparent of it and to extend their head coverings, kimars, to cover their bosom, jibes, and not display their beauty except to their husbands, or their fathers, or their husbands' fathers, or their sons, or their husbands' sons, or their brothers, or their brothers' sons, or their sisters' sons, or their women folk, or, or, what, their, uh, or what their right hands rule, slaves." or the followers from the men who do not feel sexual desire, eunuchs perhaps, or the small children, not eunuchs with an X, isn't that a software thing? Eunuchs. Or the small children to whom the nakedness of women is not apparent, and not to strike their feet on the ground so as to make known what they hide of their adornments, and to turn in repentance to Allah together, 
owe you the faithful in order that you are successful. Quran Surah 24, Anur, verse 31. And then it discusses a fatwa. A fatwa written by Muhammad Salih al-Munajid, a Salafist and founder of the website, yeah, the founder of a website, IslamQA.info, which was banned by Saudi Arabia because he was and still is not authorized to give fatwa, states. The correct view, as indicated by the evidence, is that the woman's face is ara, A-W-R-A-H, which must be covered. It is the most tempting part of her body, because what people look at most is the face. So the face is the greatest ara of woman, or of a woman. And in a way, I have to agree with him here, because I think it was actually... Jenk Uger, and I, I alluded to this in the last episode, uh, when I briefly mentioned uh, Turkey in passing and how I thought I heard that Turkey was experiencing a resurgence of religious fundamentalism because Turkey is thought of, uh, I think as Sam Harris put it, the poster boy or poster child of Muslim secularism or whatever. Yeah, I thought it was. I heard Jenk Uger say before that there were more instances of women wearing the traditional garb and this and that. And I was researching it and I was looking at images of Turkish women where I don't know if it's a niqab or what, but the you know they're wearing a headscarf, but the face is revealed. And uh, I don't know if this this is going to sound sexist or or pervy or whatever. But I, I do think that he has a point that the female face is, you know, perhaps the most alluring part of the body. And I think that's because that's where the personality is. Uh, I was almost tempted to, to rattle off that quote about how the eyes are the windows of the soul, even though I'm an atheist who doesn't believe in, a, in an immortal soul. But it's funny because all these different restrictive Islamic garments are meant to promote or enforce modesty. And yet sometimes I think that when you reveal just the face or sometimes even just the eyes, it makes them seem, uh, you know, it makes the face or the eyes seem that much more alluring. I think there's something about a, a woman with a headscarf that it kind of, and in a way, it, it draws more attention to the face. It kind of accentuates it, which I think is a good thing. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with admiring the beauty of a female face. But I remember looking, it, it looked like th there was like the, these, it looked like glamour models posing, wearing scarves. I'm like, those, those chicks are kind of hot. Can I say chicks? Is Steve Shives going to like jump out of my closet and attack me? Um, but it reminds me like a, a, of a funny little story. I was recently at the dentist and actually I think the dentist himself might have been Pakistani and the hygienist was a young Muslim girl wearing a headscarf. I didn't have any problem with that, obviously, although she did find a cavity and I haven't had a cavity in like 10 or 20 years, but that doesn't have anything to do with the fact she's wearing a headscarf. I'm pretty sure. But I remember thinking to myself jokingly, imagine she whispers in my ear, I know you host the week in doubt. <laughs> I've listened to your Muslim episodes that all of a sudden gasses me and I wake up with no teeth or something. I don't know, weird little things I think of to amuse myself. Then it talks about a Muslim concept known as Namas, N-A-M-U-S. For me, it reminded me of Nima. I don't know if any of you out there, I know John Haas is. Uh, 
fans of of the band Ghost, formerly known or sometimes known as Ghost BC. I think they consider themselves almost like almost like performance artists in a way. They're a Swedish group and they're absolutely awesome musicians. And they kind of pretend to be this satanic rock band. Uh, the, the music's unbelievable. But they say uh, Nima in the middle of one of their songs. I found out it's actually Amen backwards. But this isn't Nima. This is uh, Namas. In the Muslim world, preventing women from being seen by men is closely linked to the concept of Namas. Namas is an ethical category of virtue in Middle Eastern Muslim patriarchal character. It is a strongly gender-specific category of relations within a family, described in terms of honor, attention, respect, respectability, and modesty. The term is often translated as honor. And the first thing I think of is honor killings. <laughs> when it's thought that, why am I laughing? When it's thought, you know, a, a woman hasn't been modest enough or um, went out with the, with a man that uh, she wasn't allowed to or something like that. It ends up, or in some grotesque situations, a woman is raped and, you know, and, and killed because uh, she's dishonored the family or whatever. Yeah, and I just did a Google search, and there's all sorts of horrible, depressing stories about women being uh, killed for being raped. There's a whole Wikipedia article on the stoning of Aisha Ibrahim Dahalo, I think it is. She was uh, executed by the militant group Al-Shabaab in 2008. So his initial reports stated that the victim was a 23-year-old woman found guilty of adultery. However, it turns out uh, that she was 13 years old, under the age of marriage eligibility, and that she was arrested and stoned to death after trying to report that she had been raped. And there's another story. Uh, Islamic State stones four rape victims to death for, quote-unquote, committing adultery. Afghan girl, 10 years old, slated for honor killing after being raped that's from the clarion project so just a bunch of awful stuff but i guess you know my takeaway from all this is like my kind of last word if you're in a part of the muslim world where you're being forced to wear some kind of restrictive garment i think as bill maher and sam harris have sometimes uh not so diplomatically termed it being forced into a cloth bag that's absolutely horrible. Um, if you're in a Western nation and you're wearing it because, for whatever reason, it happily reminds you of your cultural identity or whatever, then me personally, I have no problem with you wearing it. You know what I mean? When I'm driving around, sometimes I'll pass Sikhs with turbans. I'll pass Muslim women or whatever. Even in my small town of Burlington, Mass., you know, we have a mosque here. It doesn't bother me, and in fact, I kind of think to myself, oh, it's kind of interesting to see all these different people wearing different clothes, coming from different traditions, kind of walking around. As long as you're not trying to blow me up or cut my head off or force your religion on me, you know, wear what you want. Walk down the street dressed like Pennywise the Clown, I don't care. But I guess with that being said, I'll call it quits. And I've actually been trying to lean away from the mic this episode. I have a very loud and low voice. And uh, sometimes I think it, it almost starts to borderline distort when I'm too close to the mic. 
But uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. You know the drill, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Patreon. Check out the YouTube channel. You can rate the show or subscribe on iTunes. You can check the show out on Stitcher if that's more convenient or to your liking. And now I have that second YouTube channel. If you're into poetry and short stories and stuff like that, check out Phil Reads. It's too... So, I, that just sounds like a name, like Reeds, like R-E-E-D-S. No, it's it's Phil Space Reeds, R-E-A-D-S. Uh, if you're not interested in that literary kind of mumbo-jumbo, then don't worry about it. Just stick with the original Week in Doubt channel. And uh, maybe give me some feedback. You know, do you, do you dig when I upload off-topic content to the Week in Doubt YouTube channel? Do you find it annoying? Maybe I should do like a little uh, survey or something. Uh, also, I started kind of excising segments from the main show. And so on YouTube, uh, I've been uploading like a s- segments from the main show and then the main show itself. Because I know some people have kind of a short attention span and, and they prefer shorter videos. But I know some people, you can't win. Some people also find that annoying. They're like, why are you uploading these short little segments or clips when we can find them within the main episode? So I don't know. But feedback, both positive and uh, also constructive criticism, always welcome. All right, guys, till next time.